So, hey, let me begin. I want to show you a picture, if I can have you please. So that's a meal on the preparation. It's, it's, a, it's a, a chicken curry, as you can probably see there. As you can see, everything's just been thrown in. I'm a real messy cooker, okay? Just throw everything in. And, but I want you to imagine if all of a sudden you decided it was time to eat, and you took some of that and put it on a plate, next slide please, and served it. I mean, how would that be? It'd just be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I mean, in fact, it'd be dangerous. The issue is, can you see what the issue is with that meal? It's not. Yeah, it's not cooked. It's not finished. In the words of last week, it's not finished yet. Can you see the issue? See, when it's finished, the hope is it may be something edible. Okay, you can always hope, right? But in that halfway stage, when the ingredients are going in, when the chef, not that I'm, not that I'm a chef, okay, when the chef is at work to interrupt that process and to take something from it, will mean that there's, there's chaos. It won't make sense. It's not going to taste good. It could even be lethal. The point, friends, is that whatever God is doing in our lives hasn't finished yet. And if we interrupt God, demanding that at this juncture, right now, our lives have to make sense. They have to mean something today. They've got to be fulfilling today, or purposeful today. It's got to make sense today. That we're going to be disappointed. And that's when people start shaking their fists at God, or walk away from God. I mean, how many people give up on God when the going gets tough? And so last week was an introduction to this book that whatever the, the lie of the land, presently, God's not finished yet. Naomi and Ruth at the end of chapter 1, with everything seemingly in a mess, we're told that they returned to Moab, Naomi's home country, accompanied by her foreign um, daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. And they arrive in Bethlehem, not an insignificant place, we'll see a bit later, at barley harvest, as the barley harvest was beginning. The timing of their arrival couldn't have been better. It's absolutely brilliant. We have to say, and we'll see as we go along, it's not an accident. Of all the seasons they could have returned, it's this one. It's no accident. They've been away 10 years. They could have returned at any moment. But it happens to be at barley season. And now we'll begin to see something of God's purposes for them unfold. The first significance is, it's obviously harvest time. But as an issue, Naomi and Ruth don't have any harvest to harvest. Or so you think. Is anybody aware of a harvest that Ruth and Naomi do have opportunity to reap? Does anybody know what it is? It's an obscure Old Testament law that promises people like Naomi and Ruth a harvest. It's in Leviticus. Let me give you the text. Here it is. Look, Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen and in green. 
Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Can you see in harvest season, even if you haven't planted because you haven't got the means, there is a harvest for you to reap. So Naomi and Ruth have returned at the time where there's a harvest for them according to law. God had ensured that the very poorest of his, of his nation, of the land, have something to eat. It's a form, a very early form of social justice, of state care, if you like, where God is a leader of that state. And so you can see, either this was just absolute luck that just happened to come at harvest time, or as we'll see as the book goes on, no, there's a greater power at work here. A power bigger, greater than Naomi and Ruth. So our heading, our theme for the whole book is the mystery of providence. And today's subheading, providence at work. Providence at work. Last week we did a whole chapter, okay? Today we're only doing three verses. So if it took us 34 minutes to do a whole chapter, three verses... Well, you work it out, okay? When you, when you figure it out, come and tell me, just in case I forget. So we're just doing three verses. Verse 1. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. So this is our first introduction, okay, to this character, to Naomi's, to a relative from Naomi's deceased husband. He's a man of standing. It doesn't just mean he's standing upright. It means he's got community standing. Okay? What's really meant, what's behind the original commentators say is that here is a powerful and wealthy landowner. That's who we're dealing with. A very powerful man. Influential, wealthy. Okay? Immensely influential, immensely wealthy. This is no insignificant character. So we're introduced to. Now, naturally, Naomi, who's married to Elimelech, she would have been aware of these key figures in the lives of her husband. Remember, they were quite wealthy. You know, so this is obviously a wealthy clan. We're told in Ruth 2, 20, uh, ready for us earlier, this man is our close relative. Naomi knew of him. See, the obvious question that you want to know is, why didn't Naomi come and speak to him? Explain her situation. Seek a bit of help from a relative. And, you know, he'd be, he'd be on the obligation to help. Obviously. I mean, we know why, don't we? Why? It's, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating, isn't it? You know, to have access to a lot of wealth when you can buy what you want and then to be without, it's, it's really hard to go and ask for help. So Naomi, perhaps for embarrassment, who knows, hasn't sought the help of this very wealthy relative she's got. But she may not have, but someone else is at work here, ensuring Ruth and Naomi get help. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabiter said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain beyond anyone in whose eyes I find favour. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth's obviously aware. Naomi, we can only imagine that Naomi has led Ruth to faith. And in that process has explained something of the law. 
and certainly the law of harvest because she's, she's aware of it she wants to come and glean she's become she's informed somehow this isn't remember this isn't a get rich scheme it's a form of begging it's, it's a way of asking without doing the deed directly and it didn't give you much it's not as though you're going to somehow glean and end up with you know with, 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 with a barn full of harvest you can put your feet up and live merrily after like the gentleman that Jesus speaks about now here's what we're told by a commentator a hard day's work under the hot sun frequently netted only a small amount of grain barely enough barely enough for a meal for that day and if you had just one meal in a day that was pretty good so Ruth has biblical law on her side but nevertheless she's nervous and we're told look she hopes to to find favour in somebody's eyes what do you think would have made Ruth nervous a bit apprehensive pardon yeah, she's a foreigner. You know, you know. Look, it's natural within all of us that you know that we can, that there can be this, this, this. You know, standoffness sometimes. It's not good, but there can be. I mean, she's a foreigner. It may well have been obvious by how she looked. So there's a bit of nervousness. She's a foreigner. Not only that, this is we said before. This is the period of the judges. What was the what was the state of the nation during the period of the judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes now which means no one cared about the law and if you're if you've got a harvest due and you're going to send out your workers and you, no one cares about the law at this time in the nation are you going to leave <laughs> some of the corners you're not are you so so Ruth's apprehensive she's hoping to find favor in somebody's eyes because she's not certain it's going to work out so she sets off it's unknown territory. A foreigner. A woman. And so in verse 3, she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, you know, I want you to hear me say that in my uh, foreign accent. Okay? As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz did you hear that as it turned out it means by chance seemingly she found herself she just happened to be in the field of, Bo- of Boaz it's the most ordinary mundane language you know in Genesis when he talks when he says and he made the stars also like you know like and he just made a few stars how many stars did he make Trillions upon trillions upon trillions. Innumerable. And, and all we have in, in the text of Scripture, and he made the stars also. Like, like it's insignificant. And you get that here. Can you look? Uh, and she just happened to find herself in Boaz's field. No. It wasn't just that. This is much bigger. Something colossal. Something mammoth is happening here. It's that word, that P word. Remember it because it's at work in your life right now. Providence. Here's what providence is. God working behind the scenes in the lives of believers, bringing about his great master plan. 
go think of it. The land of Judea is vast. It's not a small place. Okay? There are many fields. Ruth went out randomly looking for somewhere suitable. Or whatever her heart or her instincts led her. She just happens to land in this one relative who happens to be one of the most powerful, wealthy men in the area. You may think it's by chance, but as the story unfolds, we begin to see there's something much bigger going on. And we begin to see, friends, that it was God's hand that motivated Naomi to return home to cross the border. It was God's hand that triggered this loyalty that Ruth felt towards her mother-in-law, this sacrificial love. We begin to see through the book that it was God's hand that triggered Ruth to want to support her mother-in-law by going and gleaning. And we'll see over this week and next that it's God's hand that has steered, channeled, directed, very gently, also gently, God's hand wasn't knocking or pushing Ruth. He's so powerful, you see, this God, that he was wielding his power in the most subtle, gentle, covert sense, as it were. No one knew he was there. Ruth wasn't aware that he was there. Nor Naomi. She'd given up hope. But he was there. And God ensured that the step she took that morning, every single one, as autonomous as they may have seemed to her, were in fact directed by someone greater than her. Here's what a commentator says. Her choice of field was no accident. God had seen, had been her unseen guide as subsequent events were to prove. We're getting this from the whole book here. I know it's early on. But as subsequent events prove that it was no accident. God had been her guide. It's providence at work. A deliberate, intelligent power. And that's the, that's the thing, important thing here. We, we, we're, not, we're, not, we're not believing and trusting in the Bible in a big God, in the, in the deist form of God who's somewhere out there, who's wound up the clock and just lets things happen. No, this is a God who's very close at hand, who's powerful, intelligent, and deliberately at work. And if we had time this morning, we'll, have, we'll do it over the next few weeks, we'd begin to see the most wonderful events. Ruth is perhaps one of the most moving books of Scripture. Every time I read the story of Joseph, it tells me, uh, I, I won't, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, it has me in floods of tears. The story of Joseph is probably my, the favourite story in all of the Bible. Okay. It's just so moving. This is probably second, if not close first. When you read the book of Ruth and what God does in the life of her and her mother-in-law, out of desperation, it's just moving. Absolutely moving. It is one of the greatest stories in the Bible. And it begins to unfold when she happened to land in Boaz's field. Let me tell you this, Christian, that this isn't a one-off, as this is, well, this is a, an anomaly. 
when you read the Bible, and if you read it from cover to cover, can I encourage you to do that? We begin to see that God, this, he does this regularly, this is habitual. There's a pattern in how he operates, that this is common for God, that he works often behind the scenes of the Lord. Let me tell you about Abraham and Lot, you know it. Abraham and Lot are together, that the land can't sustain them with all that they've acquired. So Abraham says to his nephew, look, we can't carry on like this. You choose Lot. You can have any part of the land that you want. Any part. You choose. Well, did he give him the free choice? He did, didn't he? He could have gone anywhere he wanted. And yet, the choice that Lot made was one that God influenced. Listen to this. God says to, to, to Abraham, Okay, lift up your eyes from where you and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give you as an offspring. It wasn't by chance that Lot rejected Canaan. It was by design. It was by design. And so we can see, can't you, can't we, that God can influence a person's thoughts decisions and choices. Are you aware of that? That God can influence a person's decision, choices. We're told, let me show you how much more he can do. You know the story of Joseph, the one I've just mentioned, my favourite story? Okay, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery out of jealousy. Okay? And spite. And evil. Okay? Uh, there's no good intentions whatsoever. They hate him. In fact, they were going to kill him, remember? They hate him. There's no good intention whatsoever. This is an absolutely dis- displicable act. And yet, what does Genesis 50 tell us about what they did? Genesis 50, listen to this. You'll know the verse, it's famous. You, says Joseph to his brothers, okay, you intended to harm me, you evil brutes. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Can you see how powerful that is? That God, even amidst evil, even amidst, ter- amidst terrible thoughts, wicked schemes, okay, but when God is nowhere to be seen seemingly, even in that vacuum, remember what David says in Psalm 139, where could he go where God wasn't present? Where? Nowhere. When Joseph's brothers were planning that evil scheme and carrying it out, God was there. And he took hold of evil. He took a hold of bad. He took a hold of sin. And made something beautiful out of it. In fact, Proverbs tells us, tells us listen to this, Proverbs 20, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. That's the ordinary guy on, on the street. A man's steps are influenced by the Lord, directed by him. And Proverbs 21 tells us the king's heart even. Even the most powerful men, a trump, okay? Perhaps the most powerful man in the world. Who directs? Who ultimately has influence over everything he does? Who ultimately? God. You see, you see, God 
has such control over his universe that can influence the minute thoughts that we entertain. In Matthew, tells us, listen to this, are there not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father? There is no place, there is no sphere, there is no person, there is no mind, there is no domain that is outside of God's jurisdiction. Where he can't intercept a thought, an action, and, and turn it for his good. It doesn't mean he's the originator of evil, but it means that he can be involved and use whatever occurs in our process of thinking or acting and ultimately bring out a greater purpose that he has from it. The, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Sir Winston Churchill, famous Prime Minister, the wartime Prime Minister, here's what he said. Okay? As far as we know, he wasn't a man of faith, although I'm sure he did believe in God, but as we would understand that term to mean. And yet this is what he says, the longer one lives, the more one realises that everything depends upon chance. But listen to what he means by that. And the harder it is to believe that this omnipotent factor in human affairs arises simply from the blind interplay of events. Chance, fortune, luck, destiny, fate, providence seem to me, says Churchill, only different ways of expressing the same thing to wit that a man's own contribution to his life story is continually dominated by an external superior power. Do you know why he said that? Because we were losing the war. And yet, by influences outside of Churchill, he saw the war effort turning and understood that this was bigger than Winston. This was bigger than Hitler. There's someone greater still was influencing the ultimate outcome of World War II. This is God's world, Christian. He is king here. And nothing here happens without his prior knowledge, without his sanction, without his oversight. Wars, even down to your decision. Who here? Who here has decided to follow Jesus? I did. I should imagine almost every person in this room. And yet, this is how big he is. And this is how small you are. Me too. He was the trigger of that decision. His work in your life, ever before you thought of him, okay? Okay, so forget all the bragging. Ever before you even thought about God, he was already at work in your heart and your mind. Okay, steering it in just the right way. Wiring it in just the right way. Providing the circumstances at just the right time that you will be sitting in a church service or in a Bible study and hear God speak and hearing Him choose to follow Him. John 6, when Jesus is with the disciples and thousands have left and He's left with these 12 
He asked them, do you want to leave too? It's a question, it's a choice they have. Do you want to leave too? And Peter decides to stay, along with the twelve. Listen to this. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where do you want us to go? Of course we're in. I'm staying. I choose you, Jesus, says Peter. And what does Jesus turn around and say to him? What does he say to him? Peter? Before you get big-headed, Peter, you haven't chosen me, you fool. I chose you. You're standing here, Peter, when thousands have left, because I chose you to be my twelve. In fact, he chose him to be the leader of his church up until the transition to Paul. The Bible is clear, you see, from how we came to faith to the details of our lives to great world events, to universal events, however perplexing, however turbulent they may appear, however disjointed, however random, however much it may just seem, it's all down to chance. The Bible speaks, and God's voice speaks, and He tells us it's providence. It's providence. God's power is so limitless, His intelligence so incredible, His foresight so unlimited, His patience never ending, that He can see a project through from beginning to end, and He can span it across. I mean, how big a project? If I I plan a project, it's got to be finished within a, a few hours. Because after that, I'm getting impatient. Okay? Maybe you can plan a project for a few weeks, a few months. Who can plan a project for a few years? Who can plan a project here? Let me ask. Who can plan a project here and see from start to completion that's going to last 500 years? Who? Who? Steph? Who? God is so big. He can begin something thousands of years before it's to be completed and he has the patience boy that's a difficult word I know I find it's difficult he has the patience to see something that began in Genesis 1 and to still be at work in that process today this is what he says in Philippians we quoted it last week he who began a good work in you when did he begin the good work in you let me, let me ask you, when did God begin his good work in Catherine? He began? Pardon? Before she was born. It didn't even begin in Genesis 1, did it? It began way back in eternity. Way, way back in eternity. And he had the patience to see through to where it is now. God is of such a caliber. This is who you're dealing with. Okay? This is who you're dealing with. Someone, whether it's, it's an hour-long project, a week-long project, a year or two-long project, a decade, a lifetime, several lifetimes, he can see through. And that is what's happening in Naomi and Ruth's life. Naomi had suffered terribly in migrating to Moab. Terribly. She'd returned to Judea in abject poverty in every way. Now she's having to resort to sending her daughter-in-law out. This is really embarrassing. To fend for her. 
by all reasoning, this is a desperate case. A desperate case. If you start, you just read chapter 1, you, you can't imagine any good could come out of this. And yet, God hadn't finished with her. And if we had time to finish the narrative, and God willing, we will. It's the most incredible, powerful, beautiful conclusion. Out of misery, loss and pain. Verse 3. She went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. Let me bring this to us. I don't know if your life is marred with failure, disappointment, confusion, hindrances, dead ends. I, you know, I don't know every detail of some of your lives. I know some of them. I'll tell you about a man whose life was littered with failure. And you'd write him off. You'd think the only thing anything anything good come of him. Listen, listen to this. He failed in business in 1831. He was defeated for the legislature in 32. Okay, he was his sweetheart died in 35. He had a nervous breakdown in 36. He was defeated for speaking in 38. He was defeated for the elector in 40. He was defeated for Congress in 43. He was defeated for Congress in 48. He was defeated for the Senate in 50. He was defeated for presidency in 56. He was defeated for the Senate in 58. Failure after failure after failure after failure after failure, and eventually. The man who knew only failure was elected as the greatest president of the United States of America. Who? Abraham Lincoln. You would have wrote him off in 56, in 32. He became the greatest president, the 16th and greatest president of the United States of America. What we're saying, friends, is however messy our lives may be right now, however perplexing, however miserable, however pointless, however desperate, however impossible, Jesus' providence is at work in your life. It's no chance your life is where it is today. Accidents haven't led you to where you are. A greater, bigger hand is a work, as he was in Naomi and Ruth, as he was in Abraham and Lot, as he was in Joseph and his brothers, as he was in Winston Churchill's life, as he was in Abraham Lincoln's life. That same hand is just as interested and just as powerfully at work in you. Romans 8, we quoted it last, last week. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That there's not an event in your life that wasn't necessary. What do you think all those failures did to Lincoln? What do you think those failures did to his character? Made him the man he needed to be to withstand the civil war. Okay? What do you think the events of your life are doing in you? There's not a single encounter, single event, single episode, single scenario, single situation, single location that you've been in that doesn't play or contribute something to the whole. 
Yeah. And bring about, fulfill God's purposes for you. God's not finished with you yet. Providence is at work in your life and circumstances. And the dark pits, like the psalm tells us, Psalm 23, are a part of that process. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the darkest valley, if you're anything like me, you just want it easy, straightforward, clear cut. Now on a platter. And yet God works through dark valleys. But nevertheless, He holds course. Sometimes I think He does it because He wants to show us who's really in charge. Sometimes he wants us to let go of the steering wheel. What are we like? Have you ever, have you ever been in the car as a passenger? You know, and you seem to be approaching a traffic light rather quicker, quickly? Well, what's your instinct? You want to grab the wheel, don't you? You know, these back seat drivers or next seat drivers. Sometimes I'm sure God puts us through some of these perplexing scenarios because he wants us to get our hands off the wheel. Because he's in charge. And he's doing this. And he wants to do what he's doing more than you want it for yourself. Because he has a plan. So hang in there, Christian. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Stay the course. Keep your eyes on him. Believe in him. Trust him. He's got a plan for you, a plan for his church, a plan for this world, a plan that's holding course. So Ruth went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the Clab clan. Of Elimelech. And thus began a series of events that would culminate ultimately in Jesus Christ and Him crucified and your salvation and seat where you are today. Let me tell you if you haven't got this, the last thing I'll say. Ruth happening to land in Boaz's field that day was the first step in you sitting where you are today. Or a step. It's that significant. Amen.